Precious God, this morning, as we come to this last in the series, in this very short but incredibly uh, powerful book of Jonah, Lord, we pray that uh, first and foremost our hearts would be ready to receive the seed of your word. And that, Lord, that as that seed takes root in our hearts, it might grow, it might flourish and produce a harvest of righteousness in us. And we ask this for your glory. Amen. You may have heard that the world-renowned scientist and physical uh, theoretical physicist, Professor Stephen Hawking, died this week. The man was considered to be probably one of the greatest scientists of not just this generation, but many generations. Um, people are sort of putting him in the same kind of category as people like Galileo and Sir Isaac Newton and people like that, Albert Einstein. He was very much famous for his views on the origins of the universe. But he was an avowed atheist. And he spoke often about his disbelief in God and the Bible. And in fact, he even wrote a book about it called The Grand Design. Hawking was viewed by many Christians to be an enemy of the faith. It's been sad this week. It's been sad to read and even hateful comments of Christians about this man's death. In fact, Christians who have been celebrating the fact that he, in their minds, is now burning in hell. Christians, you know, it can be really easy for us to attack our enemy and delight in their demise. In fact, even wish calamity and disaster upon them. I mean, even if we don't actually give voice to our hatred, we can certainly harbour it in our hearts. It's easy to be critical and judgmental of others, on those, especially those, who either threaten us, who oppose us, or who hurt us in some way. In fact, they're the last people we want to see God's grace and forgiveness shown to. We would rather see harm come to them than blessing. Emotions in us actually only go to prove them than them, which we often think about, which we often think in our own minds. In fact, just like them. And in some cases, how it was with Jonah. This man we've been reading about over the last four weeks. The thing that as I've been reading through this book, the most unsettling part of this book for me is that this book is designed not just to expose Jonah's heart, but actually to expose our hearts. Our hearts. It's designed to challenge our notion of who really is the sinner. Let's pick up the story back in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. We just read that, but I just want to again highlight God's response 
to the people of Nineveh when they hear Jonah's preaching. Remember, Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh. He goes through into the city and he preaches an eight-word sermon. An eight-word sermon. Actually, it's only five words in the original language. He goes into the city of Nineveh and he says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the response of the people of Nineveh from the greatest, from the, from the king of Nineveh right down to the least in Nineveh, including the animals, they all repent in sackcloth and ashes. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, we see in chapter 3 and verse 5. And in response to their repentance to their being absolutely convicted in their hearts of their evil and wickedness and their desire to turn from that, we read God's response in verse 10. When God saw this in them, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Now think about this for a moment. Here is a preacher who goes into probably one of the biggest cities in the then known world. He preaches a message calling people to repent and they do. In fact, revival breaks out in this city where, where people from the greatest, from the king of the city right to the least, all repent in sackcloth and, and, and turn from their evil ways. There's revival that breaks out in this city. Now, I don't know about you, but if God actually called me to go to a place and actually preach and there was revival that broke out, I think I would come away from that place. I would be praising God, wouldn't you? I'd be rejoicing. I'd be jumping up and down with, with, with gladness and with excitement and thinking, wow, God, that's just amazing that you would do that. But what is Jonah's response? Look back at verse verse 1 of chapter 4. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Jonah was angry that these people had repented and God had relented in terms of not sending his judgment upon them. Jonah was angry at God. Have you ever been so angry that you're just ready to strangle someone? You've ever been like that? This is what Jonah's like. He's exceedingly displeased. That's putting it mildly. God was merciful and gracious to the people of Nineveh and this really ticked Jonah off. He was furious. He was furious that God did not wipe these people out. That he did not wipe them completely from the face of the earth. But then in verse 2, we read that Jonah prays. What an incredible an interesting thing that in the midst of Jonah's anger, he would pray to God. 
But listen what he says to God. Verse 2. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Deep down in his heart, Jonah knew that if he went to Nineveh and preached this message of God's judgment, that they would repent, God would relent, and everything would be good for them. And Jonah was not ready to accept that. Jonah was not ready to accept it. And he accuses God of being gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. These are the words spoken, actually, by God himself. So in some ways, Jonah is actually throwing God's words back at him in his face. We see these words first spoken by God back in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. And the context of, of this, let me just uh, just point this out to us just for a minute because it helps just give a little bit of, uh, of understanding. It's that God had rescued his people Israel from Egypt. He'd brought them out of slavery, remember? He'd sent, you know, how he sent the plagues on Egypt. And, uh, and finally Pharaoh relented and said, yep, go, get out of here. And so God leads his people you know, out into, out into the desert. He leads them to the Red Sea. And there at the Red Sea, they're, they're, they're all of a sudden caught in a really serious predicament. That They've got mountains on the left. They've got desert on the right. They've got the sea in front of them, this, in, this impassable object. And coming up behind them is the army of Pharaoh all 600 chariots plus. And God opens up the Red Sea and allows the Israelites to pass through. And then when the, the, the Egyptians try to follow them, he brings the water back on them. So God saves his people again. And he brings them to Mount Sinai and there at Mount Sinai, he enters into this special covenant relationship with Israel and says, you know, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And you're going to experience incredible blessing from being my people. As Moses is up there on the mountain with God, he's up there for 40 days, what do the people do? They're down here and they're thinking, oh, Moses is never coming back. What are we going to do now? I know, let's build some idols to worship. So they build this golden calf. God has done this incredible act of saving this people of blessing them in an incredible way. And this is what they say. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, by the way, this is Exodus 32, they say, they they call Aaron, and they say to him, Aaron, get up and make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. picture it. The people of Israel are there at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
God in his glory and in his, in his majesty has actually descended on the mountain and there is this smoke and fire on the mountain because it's the presence of God there and they are at the foot of the mountain saying, let us build idols that we may worship that these gods might be our gods. And God says to Moses, I've had enough. I've had enough of these people already. I am going to wipe them out. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and says to God, he reminds God of his character and reminds God of the fact that, you know, God, you've rescued these people. What are, what are people going to say if you just rescue these people only to wipe them out of here in the desert? What kind of a God are people going to think you are? Now, did Moses need to remind God of that? No. Read then in Exodus 34 that God withholds his judgment and his anger and he says to Moses that he is the God who is merciful so the people of Israel they, did, they wouldn't have even existed if God hadn't have been this kind of God and Jonah, being an Israelite himself, as we've seen it through this, this book of Jonah of the last three chapters, Jonah himself wouldn't even be where he was if God wasn't that kind of a God, would he? If God wasn't that God of, of graciousness and mercy and so forth, Jonah would be history already. He would have, been, he would have drowned there in that, in that sea in chapter 1. As we come to this chapter 4, what we're finding here is this, we've got a, a, an incredible demonstration, in fact a dramatic demonstration of what some commentators refer to as the scandalous grace of God. The scandalous grace of God. Not just towards the people of Nineveh, but also to Jonah himself. Scandalous means to cause general public outrage against something which is perceived to be a slight against that which is, which is good or, or right. Scandalous. And in Jonah's mind, God's mercy and grace towards the Ninevites went, went against everything Jonah believed was right. Jonah sees God's grace towards the Ninevites as something that is not good, but is in fact evil. Do you believe that? It's easy for us to sit here and criticise Jonah and condemn, condemn him for his foolishness. And, and folks, let's, let's call it for what it is. Jonah is being foolish. He's being ridiculous here, isn't he? But think about it. Here is Jonah getting angry at God because God is so gracious and forgiving. He's saying, God, I hate you because you're such a loving and merciful and gracious God. Doesn't make sense, does it? You know, we can often view grace as this lovely, sweet virtue. But it begins to take on a vastly different tone when it begins to include those who have caused us offence. 
Those who we believe don't deserve it. Remember, um, some years back now, many years back now actually, a particular um, member within my own family had acted incredibly terribly towards us as a family and caused incredible amounts of pain and suffering and hurt. I was furious because at that particular time we were going to a church and the church people there, the church family, could not see it. They just embraced him. was livid that these people who I call my church family would show grace and mercy to this man. I wanted them to reject him. I wanted them to cast him out. I wanted him to be treated even more badly than what he had treated us. I hate it when I see people get away with things that I believe are wrong. I'm sure that Jonah felt as though these evil Ninevites were not getting what they deserved either. Him to be punished. about people not getting being angry and bitter wasn't a healthy condition for me to be in not a healthy condition for Jonah to be in In the remainder of the chapter, what we see then is God's gracious attempts to help Jonah in his brokenness. To help Jonah to actually see, first of all, his brokenness and then to understand God's grace in a completely different light. We see God's first attempt in verse 4 of our passage this morning. What we might call God's direct approach. And the Lord said to Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? In other words, Jonah, right up front, just ask him a straight question. Jonah, do you do well to be angry at me for not bringing judgment upon the Ninevites? What's Jonah's response? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah completely ignores God. Jonah says, Jonah, do you well do well to be angry? Jonah, off he goes. But then Jonah's ignored God before, hasn't he? We'll see the steam coming out of Jonah's ears as he heads out of the city to the east of the city. He sets up this, this spot on a hill, perhaps overlooking the city, and he sits there and he waits as if his waiting and his venting or you know, his, his looking down at the city is actually going to change anything. Now, it appears he tends to be there for a while because he makes himself a shelter. 
Now, we know what Jonah would like to see happen to the city, don't we? Balls of fire come out of heaven and absolutely decimate the city and all the people in it. That's what Jonah is really wanting to see. Well, the direct approach didn't work, so God tries another approach. We see that in verses 6 to 8. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah, he's, he's down one minute, then he's up the next, then he's down again. He's all over the place emotionally, isn't he? But can I just draw your attention for a moment to God in this? Here is Jonah, and he's not in the place that God wants him to be. He hasn't got the kind of heart that God wants him to have. He's all over the place emotionally. You know, one minute he wants to die, then the next minute he's, he's happy and rejoicing because there's plants giving him shade. And then it dies and then he's down in the dumps again and that sort of thing. But does God give up on Jonah? No. Why does God not give up on Jonah? Because God is a gracious God, a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Interesting that we, we see the purpose of the plant is seen in the, in the phrase to save Jonah from his discomfort. See that in, in, verse, uh, in verse 6 there, at the end of verse 6. That phrase in the original language can also be translated to deliver Jonah from his wickedness. In other words, the, the plant was a means of God's grace to Jonah. Not just to bring him physical comfort, but actually to challenge him in where he's at in his heart. God's desire was for Jonah to be convicted of his sinful attitudes and behaviour, for Jonah to repent and to be restored. Hebrews 12.6 reminds us that God disciplines those whom he loves. If you've ever felt God's hand of discipline on you in your life, we can sometimes think that when God does that, he's our enemy. Because he loves us. And what is God's purpose for us in our lives? What is God's ultimate purpose for us? That we would become more like who? We would become more like Jesus. And God is going to do everything within his power to accomplish that work in you and me. And he's going to use all kinds of circumstances and situations and he's going to bring all sorts of people into our lives in order to actually bring that about in us. See, hatred and bitterness and having a judgmental spirit like Jonah, these things are harmful. They're harmful to to others, but they're also harmful to us, ourselves. 
And so this plant was a gift of God's grace to Jonah, not only to give him physical comfort, I said, but, but to ultimately heal Jonah's heart. In fact, you know, this is the only place in the whole book, in, in, in Jonah 1 to 4, it's the only place where we actually find Jonah being really, really happy. And that vine is, is covering him. But the happiness doesn't last very long, does it? Because when God sends the worm and the scorching east wind, the plant dies and Jonah's back to thinking, ah, I want to die. God repeats his question again. Verse 9. But God says to Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? right for you to be angry about the plant Jonah what's Jonah's response you bet I am in fact I'm so angry I want to die God I'd rather die than live with you and live knowing that these Ninevites are still alive and being blessed by you hmm progress for Jonah we see God take a different tack and this time he focuses on Jonah's concern for the plant in order to try to reach his heart. And we see God comparing Jonah's pity for the plant to his own concern or pity for the, for the people of Nineveh. Look at verses 10 to 11. And the Lord said, Jonah, you pity, you show concern for the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow. It came up into being in a night and it perished in a night. In other words, Jonah really wasn't in your life for very long. You know, you, you, can, you show concern and pity for that. It's like God saying, well, okay, Jonah, yep, you know what? I'm actually going to give you that. I'm actually going to you know, say that that's a legitimate thing for you to be you know, concerned for the plant. But if you, also, if you show so much concern for the plant, then shouldn't it be okay for me? Should not I have pity or concern for Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people, people who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle? Wait a minute. What's Jonah's response? What's Jonah going to say to God? Don't you just hate stories that just leave you hanging at the end? Don't you just hate that? What's Jonah going to say to God? I don't know. Then the story isn't about Jonah, ultimately, is it? It's about you and me and about where our hearts are with God and with those around about us. See, in the book of Jonah, what God is wanting to do, God is actually wanting to hold up a mirror to us as his people. Us who call ourselves God's people. He wants to hold up this mirror to show us how much we, in fact, are like Jonah in our lives. Those confronting things about this book is this. Is that Jonah considered him considered the Ninevites 
to be the worst people on the face of the planet. And they were wicked people. They were evil people. The things that, the things that they did, the atrocities, the brutality of these people, they were horrible people. But in this book, you know who the most hard-hearted and most horrible person is? It's Jonah. Supposed man of God. The Ninevites, when they heard God's message, they had soft hearts. They repented straight away. Even the heathen sailors on the boat, they did everything that they possibly could to save Jonah, even though it was Jonah's fault that they were found themselves in that predicament in the first place. And Jonah really didn't care about the sailors. He just said, oh, you throw me overboard. You, you know, my death will be on your hands, but that's okay. We don't, let's not worry about that. Jonah is the most hard-hearted and hateful person in this story. It's fascinating that God revealed the true condition of Jonah's heart only as he brought Jonah into direct contact with those whom Jonah hated and despised. Do you see that in the book? That God actually reveals what Jonah's heart is like only as God brings Jonah into contact, into direct contact with the people whom Jonah hates and despises. We read in Luke chapter 6 verses 27 to 28 these words. These words of Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, you know what's coming next? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who cause you harm. God not only loves us, but he loves our enemies just as much. And he calls, he calls his people to be like him to love our enemies as well. Forgiveness and grace towards one's enemies, folks, is at the very core of the gospel, the very heart of the gospel. Because after all, it was while we ourselves were God's enemies Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 even when we were God's enemies Christ died for us we view our enemies can be a very good barometer to our grasp God's grace We 
might mentally agree with the command in Luke 6 and think that, you know what, yeah, you know, that's noble and admirable to do, to love our enemies and to bless those who, who curse us and to pray for those who abuse us and so forth. And we hear these words and we read them in the Gospel. When it comes to how we practically live our lives, we can be just like Jonah and say, you know what, I ain't doing that. Isn't that God? We can often see ourselves as being so much better than these sinful people. Pride. Who in the Gospels was characterised by religious pride? The Pharisees. The enemies of Jesus. Folks, we must not see ourselves as the opposite to those whom we see as being evil, who we see as being bad, who we see as not deserving of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. But instead we need to see ourselves as people who are just. The only difference is that we have been recipients of God's grace. God's grace has been poured out into our lives. Jonah had no moral high ground to stand on here. He had no right to think that he could dictate to God who received grace and who didn't. What makes us any different? The ground at the foot of the cross is level and everyone receives the same grace. Don't we? We all need God's grace. Enough me again today that if there is one place there is one place in this world where this kind of grace and this kind of mercy should be seen in its reality. Isn't it in the place, isn't it amongst the people who gather around the cross of Christ? God's people? Surely that is the place among God's people where this grace should be seen being lived out. We should be different because we ourselves have received grace and we have been shown a better way. We're not like the Ninevites who were misguided and confused and that's what God is saying. Those 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, it just means they're confused and misguided. You know, they, they just think that, you know, that, that this is the way to go when in actual fact that's not the way to go. We've been shown the better way. As I read this letter or this book of Jonah, I can't help but think of Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant where he who had been forgiven much 
would not show grace and forgiveness to the one who owed much less. So let this teaching in Jonah remind us afresh this morning of the importance of being people who not only understand in our minds the incredible and scandalous grace we've been shown by God, but instead to be people who extend that same grace to those around about us. And it's got to start with each other. It's got to start with each other. For when we truly understand the depth and enormity of God's grace towards us in Jesus Christ, that God would hold nothing back in order to rescue us and bless us who were his enemies. When we start to grasp that, then we'll also come to realise that then there is no limit to what God may ask of us, even showing grace to those we may despise or who have wronged us. The story of Jonah confronts us with the question, how do I view my enemy? Am I happy to receive God's grace and yet at the same time deny God's grace to others? Do you do well to be angry? Gracious God, that is an incredibly confronting message this morning. Because I think deep down in all of our hearts, in our lives, we have indeed people whom we consider to be enemies. Even though we may not call them enemies, our heart's attitude towards them is just that. There are people in our hearts, in our lives, Lord, whom we find it hard to show grace to, to show forgiveness to. Put my hand up first this morning and say, yeah, yeah, that's true. We are truly going to be the people of God. Help us stand and grasp afresh this morning your grace towards us in Jesus. We are broken people. That we are sinful people. We've rebelled against you. We've rejected your word. We've just been like Jonah where, where you gave Jonah a command and he, and he went the other way. We do exactly the same in our own lives, Lord. We thank you that you don't give up on us. But that you gently and lovingly draw us back to yourself. Help us to... You, know, you, you bring situations and people into our lives to help us to actually see our own hearts first and foremost. So, Lord, help us to, to be honest with ourselves. And as your Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts this morning and perhaps brings things to mind in, 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 about us and who we are and, and about how we treat others, Lord, help us to repent and confess those things to you today and to say sorry and mean it and then seek afresh to walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ. Having, 
rejoicing in the grace which we've been shown seeking to extend that grace to those whom we find it hard to help us to do that this week in Jesus name Amen